Welcome back to the Wide Right Podcast brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Manny Navarro here, Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Tuesday, September 7th, 2021, 8 p.m. And we are recovering from Miami's 44-13 loss to number one ranked Alabama. Carlos Ledo is with me. He's got his own podcast. Uh, he's got his own personalities. He's a lot better at this than I am. If you, you should definitely check out his podcast. You want to promote it, uh, Carlos? The MIA All Day Podcast, and uh, you can you can go on there, listen to uh, my first episode of Manny, and been doing a lot of stuff after. All right, um, thanks for coming on with me. Calvin Harris is is too big time for us, so he's he's dumped us now. He's got his own podcast, and we we bicker enough on Twitter anyway for people to to enjoy uh, Kelvin and the way he he talks to me. I'm curious, um, you know, you watched that game. You and I have talked a little bit uh, since it ended. A lot of wrath for Manny Diaz and the coaching staff. They say that this was, you know, poorly coached. They need to get rid of Manny after 25 games. Um, you know, he's not the one. Um, I, I, let's start with that because I, I guess that's a big point of contention, right? It's do you have the right head coach uh, to lead your program forward? Did this loss rattle your faith in Manny Diaz? Well, first of all, let's just say that Kelvin didn't show up because he didn't want to have to deal with his whole 15 and 0 prediction going up in smoke and <laughs> us ragging on him for an hour and a half or more or less about all that shit blowing up. So that's why Kelvin's probably not on today. Very but uh, <clears throat> as far as Manny Diaz is concerned, um, he got beat down by Nick Saban the same way that Ryan Day in Ohio State did in the national championship game the, the year before. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I mean, we knew this game was going to go this way. We knew they weren't going to win. Now, could they have been a little bit more competitive? Could they have lost by, you know, 20, 24 instead of the amount that they lost by? Probably. But this wasn't going to be a close game to begin with. I mean, there was a lot of a fan, a lot of fans out there were hoping and praying that, you know, Alabama somehow didn't play their best game, that somehow they weren't ready because of the change in offensive coordinators, the loss of weapons on offense, that maybe somehow we can create some turnovers on defense and get this game close and in the fourth quarter have a shot. But it was the margin of error in this game was always razor thin. And it was going to take the best game in the Manny Diaz era and probably one of the worst games that Alabama's played in the last 10 years for us to be competitive in this game. I'm not saying the Hurricanes are horrible. What I'm saying is this is the analogy that I gave a bunch of my friends. Alabama is the SEAL Team 6 of college football. These dudes are the elite of the elite. We are not there yet. All right? We are like that... Uh, Olympic runner in the 100-meter dash that gets to the Olympic final and then has to go up against Usain Bolt. The guy gets smoked by 15 yards, but, oh, you know, he sucks. No, he doesn't. He was in the Olympic finals. He just got smoked by the best runner in history. That's the point. And a lot of people have brought up this point that this isn't last year's Alabama team. Like, somehow, Alabama hasn't been good for over a decade. Like, they haven't been elite year in and year out. I mean, how many times... Has Nick Saban lost more than two games while at Alabama? It, it hasn't happened much. 
I mean, he's won back-to-back national championships at one point at Alabama. He's won seven since he's been there. This isn't about, oh, they're going to have a down year, then it's going to take them a while to build back up. They're good every year. They compete for the national title every year. So this is no surprise. That whole excuse of this isn't last year's Alabama team, well, no, it's not, but they're pretty damn good too. Well, I, I heard you say a lot of you know great points there, Carlos, but you didn't answer my question. Did this do anything to rattle your faith in Manny Diaz? Is he the is this was this enough evidence of coaching ineptitude, poor game planning, not getting his team ready in the sense that Hey, we, we're going to have to hire another coach eventually. Did you walk away from that game feeling that way? No, because at the end of the day, just like Kelvin likes to say a lot, it's it's more Billy's and Joe's than it is X's and O's sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the gap in talent is so great that no matter what you scheme up, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, <clears throat> were they ready to go? Were they the most prepared they've been in the Manny Diaz year, era? No. But were they prepared to the point where, I, you know, game one, they looked good enough to beat maybe somebody else that wasn't Alabama? Probably. I think what I ended up seeing in that game was there were some missed opportunities, some mistakes made by the Hurricanes that aren't schematic, that those are just individual mistakes. And also, when they did have opportunities to win one-on-one battles, Alabama won them every single time. So when you're not beating the guy across from you, I don't care what you call, what you do, how, how well prepared you are, if you can't beat the guy in front of you in a one-on-one matchup, you're done. Why do you still have faith in Manny, though? I think he's self-aware. We, he's shown self-awareness to a point that other coaches here in the past haven't shown recently. I don't think Al Golden was self-aware. I don't think Randy Shannon was self-aware. I think he's aware enough of what's going on with the program and knowing what needs to be fixed and what needs to be adjusted to be able to push it forward. And I think he sees what his efforts in the last two recruiting classes have garnered, that it's slowly building to where we have enough talent to be able to get to that level where we're competing for a playoff spot. And he's made the adjustments with the coaching staff to get him there, not only from you know a schematic standpoint with Rhett Lashley, but also from a recruiting standpoint with T-Rob elevating uh, DVD and bringing in uh, Ishmael. These guys will make a difference, and they have been. Look at this recruiting class so far. Our biggest weakness right now is defensive back, and they're going to have one of the best defensive back, if not the best defensive back class coming in next season. Well, I... I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, you know, I wrote after the game on Saturday, this was the headline to my story, fire Manny Diaz, question mark, Jimmy Johnson or Howard Schnellenberger wouldn't beat Alabama with these Miami players. And I think I angered a lot of the fan base. You know, people were, were saying, well, we never expected them to beat Alabama. But I think, you know, there is something that you have to sort of connect here with all the dots, right? And that's, is Manny the guy who's eventually going to get Miami to be where Alabama is, or are you wasting your time? And I think that's probably the number one question on, on every Miami fan's mind right now, because uh, in the end, that's what it's about, right? It's getting to be what Alabama is. It's getting back to winning national championships. And so the one thing I want to say is, you know, that for me has never changed. The standard of winning national championships for Miami should be the expectation. But I also think we need to reach a point in time where we need to recognize how much college football has changed and how much of a disadvantage the head coach at Miami is. And we did this, Carlos. We did this on this podcast before the start of the season, right? I I spelled it out that uh, it's going to take a long time for Miami to 
you know, cross the 19 and a half miles, they are behind Alabama and Clemson and Georgia and, and everybody else. But I don't think anybody thinks about that. I don't think anybody who is a Miami fan as they watch a game on Saturday says to themselves, we're in the middle of a rebuild. We're in the middle of getting, trying to get back to that point. And it's, and it's awfully difficult. And I think, I mean, part of the reason I bring this up at the top of this podcast is I think everybody needs to think of, well, how do you get past those 19 and a half miles that you need to go to catch um, Nick Saban and Alabama and all the other teams in the top of college football. And the only path I see there's to me, there's two ways. You get the Miami administration to hire a football coach who has won a national championship and has built a program from the ground up into a winner. And I don't know that that guy exists. First of all, if he does, he's had another program already making $10 million a year. Um, The other way to do it is by getting a really, really good recruiter and having him build up the roster to the point where he even survives bad losses, right? That that the fan base isn't going to want to chop his head off if he loses a game to Pittsburgh or he loses a game to Virginia. Well, what's happened over the last 20 years as Miami's tried to rebuild is every time we get to this point, every time we get to year three, everybody assumes, well, shit, he's had two full recruiting classes, right? They, they should win. Um, that's not what happens, man. Like, go back and look at Clemson. Clemson is the one example I think you can look at of somebody yep. who came from being a average program like Miami is now to becoming a contender. And elevating a defensive coordinator that had no head coaching experience. Right. I, I, I think, you know, we have to accept the way, like, you have to just know the landscape of it and, and the expectations of, well, we're Miami. We've got the greatest players in our own backyard and, and all these guys. Who go to, why aren't they coming to Miami? I'll tell you why they're not coming to Miami. Because Miami's 19 and a half miles away from being a legitimate contender. And so you want the best players to come here, but you want to fire the coach every four years. And you expect whoever takes over. Like at some point here, Carlos, like, I'm just so nauseated and tired of it and hearing the same shit over and over again from these fans that just don't understand the game. Yes, you can get pissed about what offense uh, Rhett Lashley was running, right? Oh, they weren't they weren't aggressive enough. They needed to throw the ball deeper. Oh, you know, you can yell at, hey, Manny, you know, these guys still don't know how to tackle. They missed 20. You can yell about all that. But until you get the right head coach in here or until you let a head coach grow, you're never going to get there. Absolutely. And I don't think the standard has to be Alabama. <clears throat> and I think that's where people are, are mistaken. You can be a national champion and not be Alabama. Look at LSU and Ed Orgeron. You can put together one team every few years that has a shot at winning a title and being competitive and still be in that upper echelon of college football and not be Alabama, which is a juggernaut. Because that is the outlier. Those guys are at a different level. They are recruiting and getting players at a level that nobody else in college football is getting, and it shows in their consistency. Ohio State had a lot of success with Urban Meyer, and it's carrying over with Ryan Day now, but it's still not at that level that Alabama is at. This guy has seven national championships since he got to Alabama. Nick Saban. We have five in the entirety of our program. Do you know what that is? Seven since Nick Saban got there. That's, that's insane. 
and he continues to churn this out. It get better and better. And ever since he went to the spread, it, it hasn't even been close. Like back in the day, you used to have a shot because maybe their offense wouldn't be that good, and you can have a shot at outscoring them if you got past their defense a little bit. But they're always elite on defense. Now they're elite on both sides of the ball. Not what are you going to do? It's, it's, there's no hope. But I think people have to change this mindset that it's going to be 2001 all over again in a snap of a finger, that it's going to be the 80s all over again in the snap of a finger. And that doesn't happen. It's not the same anymore. Okay? It takes a very special program, a very special situation. And like Alabama, not only do they have the best coach in college football, they have the best assistants, they have the best facilities, and they have the most money aside from Texas. Okay? They pour money into that program. Resources that nobody else, aside from probably Texas, has in college football. And we just can't compete with that. Now, what can you do? Like you were saying, you got to find a guy that can build a program. Okay? It's not going to take two years. It's not going to take three years. It's going to take about six years to see where this guy's really at in terms of how he can build a program. And like your article said back in the summer, when you started breaking down the most talented guys on this team, most of them are first and second year players. Which tells you that he's doing a good job recruiting. Exactly. Which means we need to let him let this all play out and let him build this team. Because at the end of the day, you know what? Yeah, we got smoked by Alabama. But that's not the point. This whole season didn't come down to Alabama. They could have lost 100 to nothing. And you know what? If they run the table the rest of the way or finish with one loss and get to the ACC title game, that's a hell of a season. I'll take that. That's where they should be. And that's where they should be building to. And more importantly, they're gonna start, you're going to start seeing this team get better, not only because the season's going to go on, they're going to get adjusted, they're going to feel more comfortable as the season goes on, but because the young guys are going to develop and get more playing time and start pushing some of these older guys that aren't getting the job done out of the way. Yeah, and I think we saw some of that urgency from the coaching staff when they pulled DJ Scaife out of the game. You know, a guy who has a boatload of starts here at Miami and the first 13 snaps of the game, it was evident that he wasn't getting the job done and they had to stick somebody else in there. And the coaches didn't wait. And, you know, I know DJ's listed as the first team right tackle going into this game Saturday against Appalachian State. Um, but... Um, you know, I'm sorry, Justice Alawashun is going to be listed as the starter or is listed as a starter for this game. But, you know, I think there's a chance there could be more changes on the offensive line. I think you could see Justice potentially move into right guard. You could see Jared Williams move out to right tackle. Uh, there's going to be more shuffling, I think. And I think in the end, that's a good sign, right, that your offensive line coach isn't letting these guys sort of settle into roles just because they want a job in camp. It's like, no, man, you got to fight for it every single week. And that's the only way I think, honestly, and I know it sounds like coach speak, but that's the only way you get better because I think there has been a lot of laziness with this program because yeah, there has been for years. Yeah. I mean, there just hasn't been enough talent to push the starters to make those guys better. And, you know, when you're scared for your job, you're going to perform better. You're going to perform with more urgency. And, you know, I, I, I could see other changes. DJ Ivy, I thought was terrible on yeah, Saturday. I thought he was horrendous. I, I, I thought he needs to get out of there and they need to play Isaiah Dunson with Takori Couch and but, Tyreek Stevenson and see what happens. But the issue here, Carlos, is that you, it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, it, it'd be great, right? Why, why are we still seeing Bradley Jennings Jr. at middle linebacker when he's very slow <laughs> to the hole and, and slipping and guys are just running right past him? It's because there aren't other guys available yet. It's because they're still in the process of grooming those replacements. And so, you know, Miami's in a tough spot, man. And 
I, I really, I mean, I get all the anger. I get all the frustration. It's been, what, 19, 20 years of this since Miami lost to Ohio State in the national championship, and, and Miami fans want this program to get back on track. But, you know, the honest to God truth is they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And you could sit there and, and curse and say, hey, we need to fire this guy and get this guy. And there's no, nobody wants his job. Nobody in college football is looking at this Miami job. Of I'm talking about of any substance, okay? None of these guys are looking at like, oh, I want to go to Miami and, and, and turn the program around. There just isn't. I thought the only guy who wanted to do that was Mario Cristobal. And why? Because I thought Mario Cristobal, uh, he's a hometown guy. Uh, it'd be a great story for him, right? He's a great recruiter. And I said that before Manny Diaz was even considered or, or, or was being announced as the head coach. So to me, you know, this program is in, in a position where they've got a head coach now. He's done a lot of good things to fix things here at Miami. Let the guy coach. Let the guy Just coach. Let it play out, man. And you know what? Mario was smart not to take this job because he understands the pressure that's, that comes with the job. And he was going to take it for less pay and less resources. And what was the point? It was a no-brainer to stay at Oregon if he right. got that opportunity. So, I mean, there's nobody out there that you can go, you can go write a check to because there's no check to write. I mean, even especially now, people have to understand after COVID, there's even less resources available to these programs. They missed a full year of selling out stadiums and, and revenue that they should have had that went out the window. So now a buyout is even more of a hindrance on a program. And it's going to be even more expensive to get rid of a coach to bring somebody else in. So why would you fire a coach with two, two three years left on his, on his contract? If you can't afford it, to, then what? Go out and find a coach, pay him nothing. And so you're going to have to get a guy from what? The, the AAC. You're going to have to get a guy from a, an outside of an even Power 5 program. Who knows what you're going to have to bring in here? And there's no, no guys available. Sometimes you just have to ride with the guy you have and see what happens. We haven't seen anything yet. Like the most important thing is this dude was 7-1 and one in the ACC last year. Yeah, it sucked that we got drilled by North Carolina and ended up losing to Oklahoma State, mainly because we lost to Eric King in that game. But 7-1 in the ACC before Mark Rick got here, the last time they won 7-1 in the ACC, they never did that before. Right. No, and, you know, the one thing I'll say, Carlos, is, you know, it, it takes baby steps. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while before Miami gets to that point where they can compete with the – with the Clemsons and, and, you know, win the, win the conference. I mean, I know Clemson lost 10 to three. Everybody's like, Oh, it's there for the taking. Like, no dude, like Clemson is still the best, most talented team in the conference. And what you got to hope is that Miami starts by just winning the division. I know that's not sexy. I know that's not what you get excited about, but yeah, I don't know. Everybody's pissed off here and win the coastal since Al Golden was here, but it's the truth. It's, it's, it's the only thing they can do, right? Like they haven't done it enough. They haven't been to one ACC championship game. Like what the hell are you watching? Yeah. Uh, I I just I don't I don't I don't understand the anger and the frustration towards Manny because I think you know first of all, uh, Blake James is the one who made the hire, right? I mean, and he took what twenty four hours to decide that it was Manny Diaz. Yeah. Um, you know, in in the end, like the administration to me is the one that's in charge of all this, and they don't care about football. They, to me, they don't care about winning big, right? I mean, all those new buildings are up. Um, around campus uh, since joining the ACC. They've got these great new facilities. There is no urgency. I don't want to sit there and say they don't care about winning because I'm sure a few of them do. But I, I'm just saying, like, I don't think there's any, like, oh, my God, uh, we can't beat Clemson. We can't even get to the ACC. Like, there's nobody sitting around Miami saying that except fans. Like, yeah. 
I, I, I just don't get that sense whatsoever. Like they'd like to win the ACC, but they also like the new buildings and all that money that they're getting from the conference uh, more than that. Yeah. So I, I just I, I know it's frustrating for fans who tune into this podcast and other places to hear this kind of stuff. But I, I'm just trying to be honest with you. And, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to defer. People were accusing me that because I'm Cuban and, and Manny's of Cuban descent that, you know, here I am defending the Cuban coach. Right. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I called this dude a buffoon in the first yeah. season. Yeah. Um, and I've and I've written that I wish they would have taken more time to decide before hiring a head coach. I told we talked. I talked about it with Manny himself. You know, I, I, I just listen, man, let's 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 go over some numbers here. Right. <laughs> Dabo Sweeney in his first two full seasons as a Clemson head coach was 15 and 12. Okay. 15 and 12. He was two and six versus the top 25. He was 10 and six in the ACC. Great research. That's pretty much what Manny is right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimbo Fisher was two and four his first two seasons against the top 25, 19 and eight, slightly better, and 19 and eight overall, and 11 and five in the ACC. Again, not a world beater. Brian Kelly, his first two years in Notre Dame, 16 and 10. And two and three against the top 25. All right? Great so, research. Dude, these are coaches that you would say are elite coaches right now, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least at the top of college football. They had time to build their programs and get their recruiting classes in. Another thing that people don't understand about the recruiting classes, this is why it's important. When you are building a program and you're building a system, you need to recruit to your system. You are at this point, you have guys that you've carried over from another program, from another system that you're trying to plug and play in the current offensive and defensive schemes that may not fit, but they're the best guys you got. So you got to make it work. Right. So, but these other guys now, these young guys that we've recruited, they've been recruited specifically to fit in these systems. Right. They're targeting guys with the thought in mind that, you know what, this guy can be a striker. This guy can be the kind of rush end that we need. This guy could be the kind of slot receiver that we're going to use in the offense. This is the type of running back that fits our system. This is the type of quarterback now that fits our system. And that makes a huge difference. And not only that, but consistency in the coaching staff makes a huge difference. Because when you're recruiting, you're building relationships with kids. And the last thing these kids want to do is build a relationship with somebody and then see them bounce in two years. Because they're going to be like, well, the f- like I, I had a relationship with a year. I don't know you. Yeah, you might be at the same school, but it's not the same dude. And wherever that dude goes, I'm probably be more loyal to him, especially if it's a program just as good or better than yours. And that happens all the time. But I, I don't want to sound like I'm criti- criticizing the fan base because, you know what, I am one of them. I am a fan. And I've been there before where I was insane and I had blinders on. Over the years, I broke myself out of that, thankfully. And I learned to be a little bit more objective over time as I got older. But it's hard, man. It's hard because we've been king kicked in the nuts for 18 years and it sucks after being at the top of college football for so long and having those glory years and wanting all that back to have this drought is insane. And, and to, to really people make it seem like we just won this last 2001 title the other day, dude, this drought between 2001 and now is longer than the drought from 91 to 2001. If you can believe that. And that felt like forever. Yep. So this is eventually going to come to an end, but it's not going to come to an end. if we can making switches and firing head coaches and never having any stability. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And I, and I think, you know, one thing I do want to say is if Manny Diaz can keep the recruiting success going, right? They rebound from this loss. Maybe they don't get all the blue chip kids that they want in this class because they got clowned by Alabama. Maybe, maybe they lose a few kids, but if he comes back with another top 15, top 20 recruiting class and he fills needs and it's still, you know, a program headed in the right direction, they win nine, 10 games, then that's progress. That's progress. Now, after the end of the season, they're eight and four, seven and six, uh, and you know, kids Spiling don't want to come here anymore. Yeah. Then, then I can understand why you'd want to get rid of him, um, because now you know he's lost his his uh, his mojo, right? And nobody's right. nobody's buying into the program. Kids are leaving. I can see that, but I think as long as he can continue to progress on the recruiting trail, which I think he has, and we've talked about it, um, then I think it doesn't matter if he's a good game day coach or not. It doesn't matter if he's got the right game plan. Because Billy's you know what? Goals, man. Because once the players are here and you get to those big games and you have enough talent to win the ACC championship and get to the playoff, and then he's not cutting it in the big games, then that's when you get rid of him. And that's when yeah. you bring in somebody else who at that point might be a lot more interested in this job than right now. Absolutely. And you know what? Here's the thing, man. It, as this continues to progress, like you said, it's going to build. The momentum is going to build. If you stack two more classes, like the last two we had, especially this last class that we had, this recruiting class, the program changes exponentially. The, the talent level grows exponentially because now you have not only front, guy and li- front line guys that can play, but there's depth behind them. And like you said, competition throughout the roster. But that has to build. And if I told people before the season that Miami would be 10-2, and two, right, or 11-1, and one, let's say, and make the ACC title game, would they have taken it? Yeah, absolutely. With with a 30-point thrashing from Alabama? I think they would have been a heartbeat. Right. I mean, but if, if you just give them 11-1 on an ACC title, who cares what that loss looks like? It could have been 100 to nothing. Right. What does it matter? They're still in the <laughs> ACC title game. It doesn't matter. And that's the point. The point is to continue to stack 10 win seasons, if you can, to build the recruit, the roster through recruiting. And then, at some point, you're going to be good enough to compete for a playoff spot and contend for a national championship. And I think... If they finish 10 and 2, 11 1 in the regular season this year, and do the same, I think 2023 is going to be the year where then you could say, all right, now's the time. Now we got a shot. Let's see what happens. Well, a couple of things. Um, there were some really good highlights, I think, from the younger players. Um, we saw Jalen Rivers at left guard. Uh, to me, it was really strong performance for him. Yes, he gave up a sack, but to me, he wasn't scared. You saw a guy who was willing to get in there, mix it up with the Alabama players. Uh, he looked like a guy who's ready, right? I thought Zion Nelson played pretty well as well on the left side. Um, the guys who didn't perform well up front, Navon Donaldson, Corey Gaynor, uh, and, of course, DJ Scaife. Now, Listen, Corey Gaynor is killing me. Corey Gaynor, I've, I've talked about Corey Gaynor, unfortunately, all summer long. And it's like at this point, it's like, Derek, you remember you used to play street football, pick up football <laughs> with, with your friends, and you would say, hey, do we, do we get a center or do you want to self-hike? Yeah. No, no, the, with Corey Gaynor right now, it's like you're self-hiking. The dude has, is in the backfield so much, he should play fullback. This guy has gotten – he has gotten mauled more than Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. This dude is bad, bro. It's well, been bad. 
Well, I mean, look, I, I'm not a coach. I don't I don't play one on TV either. Um, but those are just my observations from from watching film for about six hours on Sunday, just going over stuff, seeing guys get pushed back, seeing areas where Miami got mauled. Um, you know, but I, I, I thought the receivers played well. I think the, the catch by um, Keyshawn Smith on fourth and ten where he where he extended his arms and he took the hit. I think that was like, wow, this dude is different. Um you know, Restrepo. Restrepo had the catch in the end zone. Um, you know, we didn't see enough of Will Mallory, and I think Alabama just took him out of the game plan pretty much. Um, and then defensively, you know, I liked James Williams uh, in that game. I thought there were good moments for him. I thought Cam Kitchens had good moments when when Bubba Bolden got knocked out. Um, and then at linebacker, I thought there were times Corey Flagg in his first start. You know, he, he was around the football. I didn't think Keontra Smith was bad. Uh, I thought he was he was better than what we've seen at that position here over the last year. Yeah. Um, and, and then Chance Williams with the with the sack fumble. Uh, he was the one guy who actually got to Bryce Young. So, you know, to me, there's encouraging signs um, from that first game. And I think you're going to start to see Manny um, play younger players. I think that was pretty evident from everything I've heard from listening to him talk to us on Hurricane Hotline. And I think you're going to start to see a trend where. Um, you're going to see more younger guys get reps. And I think if you're a Miami fan, that has to be encouraging because your coach knows, hey, the guys we've had out there haven't cut it. And, and I think it gets back to Manny's self-awareness, understanding right. what needs to get fixed and not being afraid to pull that trigger and get it done. And I think with those guys, those young guys rotating in against Alabama, he got to see that the moment's not too big for them. If they can perform and have moments and flash against that team, then they could do it against anybody. So now I have the confidence to start rolling them in earlier than I planned and start getting these guys out of the way that are dead weight. Yeah. Another guy he mentioned, uh, I guess on hurricane hotline tonight was Don Chaney jr. And how, you know, obviously he's coming back from that shoulder injury, but again, you know, this is, these are all, we're, we're talking about guys that are all in Manny's last two recruiting classes. Right. I mean, those are the guys I've highlighted as far as yeah. young guys who I thought showed flashes of, Hey, this is, there's hope here. And the the Justice Olawashun kid, like, I, you know, that's a great pickup by Garen Justice. We all were kind of befuddled, right? We were like, hey, why is he taking this guy out of UNLV that he used to coach? Well, first of all, they've had issues with other players, right? Um, behind the scenes, young guys that, that we were all excited about, uh, guys that um, were seniors that we were hoping would turn the corner. That's good coaching. That's a good job by Garen Justice recognizing Hey, you know what? This could be a problem and yeah. we need one more body. And sure enough, now the guy's going to be a starter for you this year already. Um, and he did a much better job than DJ Scaife uh, against the, the Blitz. So to me, these guys have shown me enough to give them the benefit of the doubt after Alabama pounded them by 30 points. Yeah. And you know what? Who, who would have thought that the, the transfer that would have made the biggest impact in that game would have been just as she was in there at right tackle, mm-hmm. as opposed to Tyreek Stevenson or, or Charleston Rambo. or DeAndre Johnson. Um, But, you know, you're exactly right. I think you're going to see these young guys, when they get their opportunities, they're only going to get better, and they're only going to solidify their spot on that roster more and more each time they get to play. Don Chaney Jr. looks totally different than Cam Harris when he gets that football. He runs with a purpose. He has vision. He attacks a line of scrimmage. He doesn't dance. And you can see burst out of him, not just size and strength. When Jalen Knighton comes back from that suspension – He's going to be another guy that you're going to see that adds another dimension to that offense. And for once, for the last few years, we've seen 
receivers that can make plays. Because, you know, maybe Rambo didn't get open deep down the field, but he made a couple tough catches. Mike Harley, we know, can play. We saw what Keyshawn Smith did. Restrepo is fantastic. The kid's got a lot of heart. He's got a lot of speed. We're, we're trending in a good way, and, and things are looking up with, this, with these younger guys. We just need more, like, more guys like them behind them as they come up. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend a lot more time reviewing. I want to look ahead. I'm actually going to have uh, later in, the, in this podcast, I'm going to interview uh, Appalachian State beat writer Ethan Joyce. He's been covering the Mountaineers for the Winston, uh, Winston-Salem Journal since 2017. Uh, so he'll be joining me in a little bit. But I want to look more big picture for the season. Uh, Carlos, looking at the ACC, what happened this past week with Virginia Tech pulling the upset against North Carolina, Clemson obviously losing at home 10-3. to Um I don't know about you. I spent a lot of time on my couch watching football from here, which, by the way, I finally got my wife and, and my youngest daughter got COVID clear. So I'm back on the prowl. I don't have to be uh, here back on the loose, back on the loose. Um, so I, but during that time, I spent a lot of time on the couch watching football. So I'm curious, um, you know, did you watch a lot of the other games? What were some of your thoughts and how do you think Miami sort of sits now in the conference based off of initial impressions off of some other ACC teams? Well, you know, eventually the Virginia Tech was going to get it together. They, they were at least going to be a tough team at some point again. They weren't going to be down forever. And as it is, we thought they were down last year, and it took, you know, last game heroics to, to, to get that win and squeak it out by one in Blacksburg. I think they're better this year. Their, their defense is solid. It's scary. Their offense might not be great, but it's good enough to help them win. So that's going to be another tough game. That's not a gimme. That game, I'll tell you what, everybody was pointing to North Carolina. That may end up being the game that decides the Coastal down the stretch at the end of the season since it's the second-to-last game of the year for us. Um, North Carolina lost to them, but that's still North Carolina. They're going to figure it out. They've replaced a lot of guys on offense, and eventually they will have things together, and they'll be organized enough to be competitive. They may lose another game here or there, but I think they'll still be tough to beat. Um, Florida State showed you know, a lot in terms of their defense, their pass rush against Notre Dame. Their secondary, I think, is still not that great, but they competed against a top-10 team in the country, and they almost pulled that game out. So they're not going to be a pushover. It's not going to be a cakewalk in Tallahassee. So I think as you look at the schedule now, it looks more difficult than it did before the season started. So if they are able to, because if before the season, a lot of people thought it wasn't that tough. If they are able to run the table or lose only one more game the rest of the year, that's even more impressive now knowing what we know. And as far as Clemson's concerned, listen, man, they ran into what is probably 1A or 1B in terms of the best defense in the country. It's Georgia and Alabama. That defense is no joke. And it held them to three points for a reason. Those guys don't play. Those guys are going to be one of the best, if not the best defenses in the country coming down the stretch. That doesn't mean that Clemson sucks. Their, their defense is still damn good. And eventually they'll figure it out on offense. Yeah, DJ Wongalale, uh, to me, yes, he, he didn't play great in that game. Um, but I, I, having watched that kid up close, seeing him, he is going to be tough to stop. And they're not going to face Georgia's defense every single week. I think the biggest thing for Clemson is they miss Travis at the end. They, they don't really have, yeah. to me, that game breaker in the backfield that helped take some of the pressure off their quarterback. They've got weapons at receiver, but that Georgia defense, I mean, I think you talk about 1A, 1B. I think them and Alabama clearly have the two best defenses in the country. And Clemson's isn't far behind, obviously, because they shut yeah. down Georgia's offense. So yeah. um, that, to me, is going to be the ultimate hurdle. Can Miami get good enough? 
to 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 score on a defense like Clemson's or an Alabama or Georgia. And then I think, you know, we expected Rhett Lashley's offense to take a jump this year. Obviously, they didn't have a good game one against one of the elite defenses. But by the end of the year, I think that's what I'm most looking forward to. If they get to the ACC championship game and they face Clemson, does this team grow as an offense, as an offensive unit and figure out, hey, you know what? We got smoked week one against Alabama, but we just finished playing really well against a Clemson uh, defense that might not be too bad or, or not or might not be too far off. That's what I'm sort of looking forward to is, you know, you look at program progression. That's what I think I want to see at the end. Uh, but as far as the Coastal Division, uh, Virginia Tech's going to be a problem, and they're going to be a problem because they're playing great defense again. And, yep. and 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 that to me, that's what makes that's what has always made Virginia Tech tough. Defense and special teams. Yeah, and and they've got a good pass rush. Their corners are not bad. Um, you know, Sam Howell, we knew, look, they lost weapons in the backfield. Um, we knew North Carolina, you know, is going to have a tough time replacing some of those guys, but just because they look like that in game one, don't just assume that all of a sudden, you know, that it's North Carolina is going to be a bad team. I don't think they're going to be a bad team because when you have a great quarterback like Sam Howell, who had a horrific performance in that game, uh, they're going to rebound. Mac Brown is going to rebound. And so to me, they're no pushover. I think you're right. I think the schedule got tougher. Uh, Florida State, I covered that game for the Athletics Sunday night against uh, Notre Dame. And, you know, watching the uh, Florida State and the way that they played, um, you know, defense. Yes, they gave up 41 points. They gave up a, a boatload of passing yards. But their run defense is yeah. markedly better than it was. And so is their pass rush. And Jermaine Johnson, I mean, four sacks. They had 10 all of last season. That kid, Jermaine Johnson from, from uh, Georgia, the transfer mm-hmm. they got in, he's like a Jalen Phillips-type talent. He is. He is. He, he's just a monster. And that's something that Miami now is going to have to face in that game in uh, Tallahassee. So And Florida uh, State has two running backs that can play. They've yeah. got Corbin and the other guy, Ward, I think it is, that can really run the ball, that are tough. That offensive line is pretty solid. Their only drawback is I don't think they, they can't throw the ball that well. Travis isn't that great of a, of a passer. And we'll see if Mackenzie Milton ends up being the starter, what he's got left, because he threw – he got away with a few throws there that ended up finding receivers. Yeah, <laughs> their offensive he, line remains um, remains an issue for them. Uh, and, you know, and pass protection, yeah. And pass protection. I, I think, you know, they can run the ball, but I think, you know, going up against – my I, honestly, I thought Miami was looked better than Notre Dame did, and I know Notre Dame won the game, but just looking at Notre Dame's defense and how slow they were – uh, at, at getting to the outside with their linebackers. Yes, they have a great safety, uh, a kid who had two picks in that game. but That erases a lot. Yeah, I mean, so to me, you know, this is just the eyeball test. I thought, you know, hey, Miami's probably just as good as Notre Dame, if not better, uh, with more weapons and so forth uh, offensively. But we'll see. We'll see how this season shakes out. Notre Dame's not in the ACC anymore. Uh, I'll tell you what, Michigan State impressed That's me. That's what I was going to say, yeah. I, I, I know – Look, I know it's Northwestern um, and all that, but uh, that Kenneth Walker kid from Wake Forest was a really good running back last year. He's over there now, ran for 264 yards, and they got, I think it was 21 transfers uh, in the offseason. They've completely – so that that game after Appalachian State uh, is a much more intriguing now uh, to me. Uh, yeah, again, because of the transfers, because of what they did against Northwestern, now that game is a lot more difficult than anticipated. And another game that's not a coastal game, but it's an ACC game, NC State's not going to be easy. Yep. Those guys played us tough last year, went down to the wire. They look good again this year. They look, look like they've improved a little bit. That game is not a give me. So there's a lot of games on this schedule that once were thought to be maybe, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. But it's, it's not like that the rest of the way. And whether you win them by 1, 3, 10, 15, or 20, you just need the Ws and keep moving forward. And I think that's what a lot of people, 
That's why, aside from the North Carolina game last year, I think why a lot of people didn't respect this team last year was because they won a lot of close games. But, man, that's that's the way it is in conference football, man. That's you're the way not, it is when you're all bundled up, bundled yeah. up, you know, in terms of talent. And, and I think Miami fans, again, I, I really wish, like, they would do the recruiting rankings like this, like, okay, number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, and then number 20. Because that's the gap, <laughs> to me, of, yeah. of, of the talent. Like when those same four or five schools get all the best players and Miami gets a handful and North Carolina gets a handful and, you know, other teams in the SEC, Florida. I mean, that's it's just a big gap. And, yeah. you know, everybody sits here. Oh, Miami's class. They were ranked 15th, 16th. Yes. Good for the next tier of teams, right. not the elite teams. And, and the only way you get there, man, is by winning. I don't know that Manny's ever going to get there. I don't know. You know, people, you can sit here and point the finger at Rhett Lashley and say, oh, he's not as good. He, he chokes in big games. You can do the same thing about Manny, right? His defenses. How come they don't show up in these? We don't know. But I'm telling you right now, they're in no position <laughs> to get anybody else who's going to come in here and make it better. I just, I don't believe it. I just don't, I don't, I don't think there's the need. I don't think anybody's pushing for it. This is the coach for the next few years. And you just kind of got to ride it out with him. Uh, until we get to see if he's any good at this. Um, and right now, it's hard to judge him. It's just hard to judge him. Absolutely. And, and you know what? There's there's something to be said about these recruiting rankings. Yeah, you know, some people don't believe in the star system. But what's very clear is five stars are legit. Those guys that are five-star athletes that are ranked by recruiting systems as number as five stars are can't-miss prospects that make impacts at programs. How many did we have on the roster for the Hurricanes this past weekend? Two. You, only, you had two and only one in the, in, in the uh, two deep. Alabama had 11 in the two deep. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. And they so, had the best and they have the best quarterback in the country, by the way. Bryce Young is the best quarterback. In yeah. The, the way that dude looked, he looked like a veteran quarterback in the NFL. The way he was sliding in the pocket, keeping his eyes downfield, finding receivers and hitting guys in stride with accuracy. That's oh, come on. That's not uh, a guy that you're just throwing out there. A lot of fans expected some dude that would just be running around back there like a chicken with his head cut off which is what I think Manny Diaz uh, kind of expected based on his comments that he was a lot better than he thought. Um, and making inaccurate throws or tucking it when he shouldn't have, this dude was poised and he was a surgeon back there. Got one last topic and then we're going we're gonna to move on to my interview um, with my buddy here, Ethan Joyce from the Winston-Salem Journal. Um, Derek King, I know the numbers 23 of 31. You know, he had the two picks off of deflections, fumble, um, the bigger issue is, you know, it was his first game back from the injury. How did you view him from a health perspective? And are you worried at all that maybe he didn't run as much as De'Ara King usually does? You know, uh, I think he looked a little bit like a guy that's been on, out for a while, that mm -hmm. hasn't had any contact, that hasn't played a game at that speed in a very long time because of the time that he missed. I don't think he was noticeably slower or anything when he was moving in the pocket or trying to get out and run. But I do think he was a little hesitant to pull it on zone reads and run the ball. But you know what? I don't blame him, man. Why get yourself killed first game of the season against Alabama when you're working yourself back, when you see that there's no shot at winning this game? Like, it's okay. He'll work his way back into it. I think by the end of the season, he's going to be hitting on all cylinders and feel more comfortable the more he plays, the more time goes on. And I think when he sees the noticeable drop-off in, in speed and talent – this week against App State and against everybody else moving forward, I think you'll see a better version of De'Ara King. I certainly think it was a deflating defeat for a lot of those guys' egos. And De'Ara, you know, maybe he didn't – maybe deep down he knew it was going to be a really hard game for him. 
But at watching the press conference, uh, obviously I wasn't in Atlanta. I couldn't make the trip. But um, watching the press conference and his facial reactions and just I could see a guy who was emotionally hurt, not just maybe sore, but like, you know, like, hey, this was really disappointing. And I think it's important that he bounces back because he yep. is the emotional lightning rod for this team. And if he emotionally isn't there the way that he was last year, uh, providing that leadership, being the guy that everybody followed, then I can see this being a problematic season because you need him 100% ready to go. And, you know, as far as his play is concerned, um, some decisions there when you review the tape, yeah. four receivers wide, two DBs in the area where he, he, he clearly looks and I had that in my article today, three plays that uh, Brett Lashley thought could have been explosive plays that Miami missed. Clearly, he looked over and still decided to hand the ball off. Not a great decision by him, but for the most part, there hasn't been many instances where I've questioned the Eric King's decision-making throwing the football. He did force it into Restrepo in the second interception. Um, I thought that was a ball that he threw out of frustration. But outside of that, he was brave. He did stick in there. He did fight in there. And, you know, I hope that, you know, the rest of the season goes the way that he wanted to and he gets an opportunity to show people how much better he is. The deep ball that he threw to Restrepo was perfectly placed, yeah. by the way. And I think that was one of the questions last year we had. Remember with his deep balls, the inaccuracy, the not being able to get it. Not only was it the drops by the receivers, but there were times when he didn't put the ball in the right spots for these guys to be able to go up and make a play. And that ball was beautiful. You could tell he's worked on it and he's gotten a lot better with it. And even though I, I think he may have been a little bit gun shy, he still tucked it and took off a few times to try and make plays. Um, he just, on the zone reach, I think he kept it a little bit, he kept handing it off a little bit too much instead of trying to actually make a play with it um, because he just felt like, hey, you know what, it's not worth it at this point. But I think he's the type of kid that he's not going to get his head down and carry that over to the next game. I think he's the type of kid, based on what we've seen over the last year and his even his rehab, the way he attacked it, he's the type of guy that's going to pick himself up, get back in the film room, work harder, and keep moving forward and getting to where he wants to be. He's not the type of guy to just get depressed and get down on himself. And I think because of the way this first game went, it's interesting to see how they start off next game and how they play uh, and, and, and what goes on at the beginning of this next game and how they play, finish out the season. Because we've seen so many times with this team, you know, even going back to, to 2018 with that loss to LSU to start the season, that once they get punched in the mouth, they get hammered or something bad happens, things go downhill. And they go downhill quickly, and it's hard to recover. They spiral out of control. And I think if this team is legit, if this team is for real, they'll take this punch in the mouth, and they'll keep pushing forward. And we'll see them at a different level by season 10. By the way, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens with guys like DJ Scaife, who's a senior um, or is in his fourth year here, had big expectations for himself, pulled, and now he's on the bench. Uh, I'm interested to see what he does. I'm interested to see what Mark Pope does. Mark Pope didn't get a single snap in this game. Uh, I don't even know if he traveled. Um, I, I didn't see number six on the sideline. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys who I think over the next couple of weeks, they're going to have their, their cages rattled by the fact that their playing time is going to be cut. We've already seen it with some guys. I think that is going to progress more and more and more. Uh, we'll see if that causes a division on the sideline and what kind of ways Miami is able to handle it. Because last season, Manny Diaz couldn't afford to put his young players on the field. They didn't have much of a spring. They had four practices. Uh, summer was basically canceled by COVID. And then they had to start a season. And so you saw a lot of these same guys, D. Wiggins, Mark Pope, DJ Scaife. They had to play them. 
because they couldn't yeah. play the young guys. I don't get that sense anymore. I think all of that is thrown out the window, and we'll see here starting Saturday what happens with playing time. I think that's going to be an f- incredible story to sort of follow here because there are positions where guys can be replaced. There are still others that they can't be, but there are positions where uh, if, if, if guys struggle, uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see who the next one is that, that gets put on I the think, bench. That's why I think it's important that Garen Justice made that change at right tackle and the changes are coming moving forward with the offensive line and in other spots. It shows that your performance – is going to be rewarded. If you perform well, you're going to be rewarded with the playing time. If you're not up to par, if you're not performing at the standard that we expect, you're going to get pulled. The next guy's going to get put in. So it tells everybody you either need to be at the level that we expect you to be, at the standard that we want you or need you to be, or you're going to be replaced. So everybody's got a bug up their ass and we're going to make sure that they look over their shoulder and know that if they don't perform, they're going to be out of there. By the way, I'm curious. Um, Frank Ponce, former uh, Miami High yes. coach. Uh, I know you know very much. You're very well connected over there at Miami High. I know Frank. You know Frank. Um, big game for him, right? Big opportunity here is the offensive coordinator of App State. He's got a lot of, uh, I think I counted 20 guys on their roster from Florida, including uh, his his number two running back from Northwestern. There's two starters on the defensive line uh, who, are, who are South Florida guys. One's from West Palm. The other one's from Northwestern. Um, what do you think of this uh, opportunity for, uh, for Frank? Listen, I've, I've known Frank for about 20 years. Um, he's a hell of a dude. Great guy. He's a football junkie. He's worked his ass off to get this opportunity. And I'm very happy for him. I'm very proud of him. Um, he's a very smart dude and he knows football in and out. So I, I think it's no shock to me that he's, he's the offensive coordinator at App State now. And, you know, he's, he's going to use his strengths. And I think the strength this, this week for App State is their running backs. They can run the shit out of the ball. I don't trust their quarterback because, as we saw last year with Duke, he, he was Duke's quarterback last year. He's a transfer. Right. I don't know that he can perform under pressure. I think once you hit him a couple times, he gets rattled and throws the ball up for grabs, which is what he showed with Duke. Now he's got better guys around him compared to what he had at Duke. He's got a better supporting cast. But I don't think it's good enough for him to be able to get back there and make any plays and be a threat for us. I think – um, Frank, Frank knows that probably, and he's going to protect the ball as much as he can try and run the clock as much as he can keep the ball on the ground and keep the ball out of Rhett Lashley's hands. Um, and, and try and win that way. Outside zone. That's going to be the, yeah. uh, the, the job for Miami's defense to stop. Uh, the two most recent examples were, were against Louisville and, you know, Louisville still managed a lot of yards against Miami in both of those games. I know Miami won both of those meetings here the last couple of years, but, um, you know, We'll see. I think the difference here is there's no there's no Tutu Atwell. Yeah, there's no Tutu Atwell, and and there's probably better linebackers now, right? Than than last year that we saw for North Carolina. So, um, I I think this is going to be it'll be a decent challenge. I think Miami's only favored by seven or eight points. What's the line? Did you you know what it is? Uh, I think it was like eight last time I checked, something like that. Okay, all right. By the way, have you spoken to Raul? I have not. uh, He he left me the message last week uh, before the Alabama game. He was very excited. Have you heard anything from him? Listen, man, when there's a if, if, if normal fans are going crazy and throwing things and cursing, Raul is doing things at a different level. He is exponentially more insane than regular fans. So I haven't heard from him. And I think that means he's probably spending some time in county lockup just because that's how insane and how crazy he gets. I'm sure as soon as he gets out, he's either going to call you or he's going to call me or he's going to call us both. Because as you heard on my podcast the last time on the MIA All Day podcast, he told me, hey, let me drop a little inspirational speech for the Canes. Shit didn't work out, but uh, let's see what he comes up with next week. 
All right. Let's see. I, I'm very interested and I hope he's doing okay because, you know, I worry about him. Uh, he, he's a big fan uh, of your show. He's a big fan of my show. He likes calling in, sharing his feelings. I just want to make sure he's all right. Cause I know a lot of Miami was down after that last game. Um, Carlos, thanks as always really appreciate all the time. It was fun talking to Canes with you tonight. I'm going to speed ahead to tomorrow morning with uh, the magic of uh, podcasting. Uh, we'll get to my interview here next with Ethan Joyce, Winston-Salem Journal. Any last words, Carlos? Go Canes. That's it. 11-1. I'm going to go Kelvin. 11-1. That's it. All right. Uh, we're getting to our interview now with Appalachian State uh, beat writer Ethan Joyce from the Winston-Salem Journal. And Ethan, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I hear the birds chirping in the background. Tell me about that, man. How, how It sounds like a beautiful day out there in Boone. You know, it... Um... It actually was just a nice little shower here. I live just, I actually live just outside of Winston-Salem, okay. kind of like in, in the direction of Boone. Okay. Um, so I get, so it sets it up for me to kind of bounce back and forth between wake and app stuff. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, a little shower, got all the birds talking. It's, it's, it's great. It's a beautiful Wednesday now. Yeah. I forgot to mention that you also cover uh, Wake Forest and that's kind of a new, new addition to you. Um, of course, uh Covering two beats is not easy, but, you know, it, it would have been hysterical had you had Appalachian State playing Miami at one point and then Wake Forest playing Miami later. No in the doubt. Year. Would, no we doubt. would have called you a Miami beat writer there for, uh, <laughs> for two games. That would have yeah. qualified. <laughs> um, you got a story coming out. I want to make sure people know about this um, project that you've been working on. It's part of the reason why I, I called you and reached out to you, uh, you know, about Hispanic Latino coaches in Division One football. Um, you know, Frank Ponce, the offensive coordinator uh, at App State is from South Florida, played at Miami High, played quarterback uh, for Ralph Al- uh, Arza in 1987 at Miami High. Um, and I know you've talked to other coaches, Mario Cristobal, of course, who coached down here at FIU, played at the University of Miami's at Oregon. Um, so really interesting read. We can start there. Um, what about Frank Ponce and just what what's he been like to work with up there and, and talk to? Uh, as he as he works at, at App State, yeah, man, I, it, Frank's been so great to get to know for me. Um, and when I first started on this beat, which would have been a few games into the 2017 season, I mean, you start getting to know the staffers, and if you can get around practice, that kind of helps too. And started having little chit chats with Frank, and really started thinking about the fact that I didn't see a lot of Hispanic Latino coaches in Division One football. Um, and as I'm thinking about that story, figuring out how I'm going to execute it, Frank gets a job at Louisville when he followed Scott Satterfield. And so I thought I had kind of whiffed on it. Um, and so now that he's back as the OC now, this is his first, his first time as a, as a full OC in college football. Um, it was just the perfect time to do it. it. It really kind of evolved into, you know, it started as a story about Frank it turned into a story about this community of guys. Like it's a small group. It's, I, I polled every FBS and FCS program. And I think all told out of almost 3000 positions, you know, head coach and 10 assistants, um, only 32 are Hispanic and Latino. Um, you know, so it's this, it's this small network of guys that when you start looking at what they've accomplished, you've got a lot of head coaches um, you've got some guys that are coordinators um, per capita. They're doing a lot with with the positions they have right now. And so 
it kind of turned into that. And um, it's, it's been one of the more meaningful projects that I've, I've done as a reporter. Um, and because it's just exposed me to a, to a completely different thought process of what it's like to not only go through that profession, but to do so as a minority coach mm-hmm. and, you know, specifically a minority of the minority coaches, uh, to be quite honest. So it's, it's, it's been a really cool experience. And, you know, Frank is kind of Frank opened the door to all of that for me. Um, so that's been really, really, uh, fulfilling. And so I'm excited for that to come out. I've been working on it forever. <laughs> good, good. I can't wait to read it. Um, you know, Frank, uh, I, I, I've known him since he was covering or since he was coaching and I was covering high schools way back in the day here in Miami Dade County. But when he was at Miami high as a head coach, where of course he played and then Coral Reef high school. Um, and then, you know, he went to go work for Mario Cristobal, who's one of those Hispanic coaches, um, at FIU, um, and he's, you know, and then of course, you know, you got the parallel to Manny Diaz, right? His father, the Cuban, uh, born mayor of yeah. Miami and, and Manny taking over as head coach here at Miami. It's kind of a great, you know, his, Hispanic story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they've gone head to head quite a bit here, uh, Frank and, and Manny Diaz, uh, maybe not directly as play callers, but seven, I think six times Manny Diaz has, has faced, uh, Frank, uh, as a coach and for Frank coaching the offensive or some piece of the offense and, and Manny coaching some piece of the defense, Manny is, uh, I think five and one in those six games against Frank. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a cool little extra storyline to this game this week. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious from, from an Appalachian state perspective, because I remember earlier this week, you know, uh, coach Clark, Sean Clark, just talking a lot about how much respect he had for Miami, even though they got absolutely shellacked by Alabama. Um, is this without question App State's toughest regular season opponent? You'd say, or what? Where do you sort of view this game and how they view it? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely fair to say toughest. As as far as like most important, I think it becomes a lot more important if App State wins it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is one of those Jerry Moore used to call it house money games. Um, <laughs> you know, where if you if you play really well and you you potentially win the game, then you know it's even better. But you just really want to come out and have a good showing and. I mean, this is a different program now than it was, you know, in 2016 when they first played. You know, this isn't this isn't a fledging FBS program now. It's a program that's really established itself at this level, and I think the talent reflects that. Um, but Sean, you know, was was harping on Miami's speed his whole press conference. Really, I think he even said at one point, like, "Hey, you know, we're a fast team, but Miami's a faster team." And if you saw that Miami app game in 16, you saw a lot of instances where Miami, they didn't have to work too hard to just get a guy in open space and it was over. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think that's going to happen as much in this game. I think it's definitely going to be a challenge. Like app's going to have to play a perfect game for sure. But, um, you know, I think when you're looking at this program and what it's accomplished since then, it it definitely – stands to reason that it should be competitive for sure. Yeah. And, and Vegas obviously thinks that this is going to be a, a, a good game. I think Miami's only favored by eight points. I haven't looked at what the line is today, but uh, yeah. last I saw was eight points. Um, and part of it is the super senior thing, right? I mean, uh, 14 super seniors. Is that right? I mean, I was going through the roster uh, last night and going through the dub chart and guys who played. I mean, there's so many super seniors on this team. Um, that's got to count for something. Yeah, you know, a lot of the guys that had really good games on Thursday are guys that are super senior guys. Mm-hmm. Um, 
their wide receiver group is made up of a ton of super seniors, uh, most notably Corey Sutton, who is a, a guy who's been prolific since he transferred to App from Kansas State. You might remember him. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that um, kind of had that whole back and forth with Bill Snyder before he was eventually allowed to transfer. Um, Corey's been fantastic. And last year he opted out just because he was recovering from an ACL injury in, at the end of 2019. And I think last year that's you saw how valuable he was just because they didn't have that ability to, to go deep and try to take the top off of the defense. And, you know, Thursday, albeit against ECU, um, you really got to see that with, with guys like him, with guys like Thomas Hennigan. Um, you know, their D-line is a lot of super seniors too. Um, and I think that's one of the bigger takeaways from at least that first game is just how um, how how well they they developed that pressure, even in the moments where they weren't sending a ton of guys, um, which I think defensively is about the best thing you can ask for if you can get that pressure going with as few guys as possible. Um, I mean, I came into this season – really with the big question mark on Chase Bryce and how he was going to fit into everything. And if, if Thursday is his average line, I mean, you're talking about one of the best group of five teams in the nation. Um, and I can say that with a lot of certainty just because they had so much coming back and the guys that were coming back are guys that have just won since they started playing in 2017. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say with Chase, I mean, he's got the experience of having faced Miami before, too. I mean, uh, Duke last season, I know Miami went up to Durham and beat a, a pretty bad Duke team, 52 to nothing or whatever it was. Um, but, you know, he, he still completed a lot of passes in that game, um, was accurate, and and he has a lot more weapons around him now at, at App State. There's no question. Um, so it's going to be – I think it's going to be a good game, and, and it to me – it really comes down to how does Miami handle what I think Appalachian State does up front. And Manny Diaz talked about this yesterday on his on his show um, that ultimately these guys move around a whole lot, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage defensively. And, you know, I was looking at the roster, looking at the depth chart um, on defense. And, you know, there are some veteran guys back, obviously, um, but really it's the linebackers who make a whole lot of plays, uh, Brendan Harrington, uh, Nick Hampton. Um, they're the guys who create a lot of pressure. Um, and then you look, okay, well, where are, how big are they up front? 6'1", 290, Demetrius Taylor, 6'2", 290, Jordan Earl, the nose tackle, and then 5'11", 235, Caleb Sperlin, I saw. Um, so size-wise, Miami should have the advantage in this game, but it's always about how, how perplexing – uh, the defensive front is and, you know, how often do those offensive linemen react poorly? Do you think that's sort of the key to this game for Appalachian State, that what they do up front on defense? Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, you list off the the heights and weights of those guys. And, you know, Jordan, Jordan, or, Jordan Earl, the, the starting nose tackle, is a little bit more of an exception because he's – I mean, he looks every bit of 6'2". But, you know, Demetrius mm-hmm. Taylor, Miami Northwestern guy, by the way right. – um, you know, Caleb Sperlin, those guys are the guys that App State has really thrived with in the sense of recruiting the guys that are talented that might be stuck or labeled as tweeners or not big enough for, you know, a program like Miami, but are definitely talented enough to do so. And I think it's what makes that defense work. It just kind of all flows from there because they, you know, they've since 
since Scott Satterfield was here um, and he hired Nate Woody, they brought in this 3-4 defense um, that's very uh, adaptive, you know. And, I, I mean, I think 3-4 has kind of become a lot it's, – it's, it's become, you know, something that a lot of programs lean on a lot now because it allows that, that ability to drop back a little easier. But um, they've always been very good at kind of mixing and matching guys. They've been very good at, at like, putting guys in positions where – they can be successful. And, and one of the things that has been a trait of that defense from the time I've been on this beat has just been the, the, the speed that they play with on that side. Um, you know, you mentioned Brennan Harrington. He stepped into that role last year in place of Akeem Davis Gaither, a guy who's with the Cincinnati Bengals now and, you know, play, I mean, he's not Akeem yet, but he's going to be a real deal guy someday in the league, I think. Um, and, and he has that ability to kind of go wherever he needs to on the field to make a play happen. Um, and he, he's a big key to this game, I think. Yeah. And, and they've got a lot of experience. I mean, I was looking at the starts at the linebacker position with those four guys. Uh, I think Nick Hampton's got only got seven, but uh, you know, Trey Cobb and DeMarco Jackson in the middle 21 and 19. Is that right? And yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harrington 13. So, I mean, this is an experienced fast group who, who's not going to be scared to coming into this game against this Miami offense. And when I look back at the Alabama game, really what it was, was Miami's offense is going to be very, very good. Uh, the question is, do they have the right guys up front to stop teams that are fast and can get around them? And, and DJ Scaife, the right tackle for Miami, who's been benched, uh, you know, he was taken out of the game after 13 snaps after giving up a sack uh, to Will Anderson and those guys. So um, I think, you know, the key for Miami this week is how do they handle these guys up front defensively and can they get going offensively, um, you know, from that perspective, uh, because they've got more size at receiver. Uh, I mean, a lot of little guys at cornerback for App State, but it is, you know, a, a secondary that has produced a whole lot of interceptions and yeah. knows how to read, read the quarterback. So um, I think Miami, if, if, if they throw the ball deep to bigger receivers like Keyshawn Smith, like. Charleston Rambo, guys that can stretch the field, they can have success in this game. And I think that's what they're going to try to do. I think they're going to try to go deep on, on, on App State and not play in those middle zones, knowing how these guys can read defense, uh, read offenses and, and pick off passes and whatnot. So I expect them to go deep. Um, on the flip side of it, um, you know, Manny Diaz has talked a lot about uh, the outside zone running game, um, you know, that these guys run. And, and Miami had problems with that in the past, um, you know, uh, Louisville, when, when Frank was there, had some good games against Miami running the yeah. football. So uh, talk to me a little bit about what they've got on the offensive side, especially from a running game perspective, because that was an area that Miami really struggled last year. Yeah, so right now they're working with an O-line that's still pretty new in the sense of, of the, the five that are there. Um, their starting center is a guy named Bear Hunter that moved over from right guard to center. And I think that's really kind of been a stabilizing force for the, for the offensive line. You know, when you looked at this team coming into the season, it was easy to point out that O-line had the most guys to replace. And that was really just because so many guys came back. They were starters from last year outside of the O-line. Um, but one thing that's been consistent, especially since Sean Clark has been at app is, first the, the run game coordinator and then as head coach now, um, they've really done a good job of, of developing that depth and having guys ready to go. You know, running game-wise, they have a tandem right now that, you know, 
I'm trying to think as far as like what these guys could accomplish, they could be one of the, they could be the best tandem that I've seen if they stay healthy for a whole season together. Um, you know, they're the start, they, they kind of rotate their running backs right now as starters between Cam Peoples, who's a really big running back that also happens to be pretty fast. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's quick, but the thing about him is he's so long. Like if you, if you look at him standing on the field and someone were to say, um, you know, he's a big safety or a safety linebacker, you would say, I see it, you know, yeah. you know, Six he's just 20, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's just a guy that looks really different back there. And he's partnered with a guy in Nate Noel that vision wise is one of the stronger guys that I've seen another Miami Northwestern guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're a great combo. And I think what you saw against ECU was that both of those guys can take off for 30 or more yards pretty easily. Um, and I think that speaks a little more broadly to the point that the offense, you know, especially for Frank Ponce's debut, looked about as strong as it could have. And for me, it looked like the offenses that I was used to seeing before 2020, which were very dynamic in the way that they could adapt. And to me, that was always the calling card of a Scott Satterfield and even Eli Drinkwitz offense at App State, it was the the way the offense could be this um, kind of amoeba and just kind of form to whatever it needed to be at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't have that in 2020. It was it was very run heavy, and I mean they were a prolific rushing team, but it was it was brutish football to watch. Um, and and Thursday, you know, seeing that offense kind of flowing the way that it did, and and the way that you know, some of the best app state teams that I've seen used to, um, that checked a lot of boxes for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the offensive line, as you mentioned, you know, uh, you mentioned bear Hunter, uh, Isaiah Helms, I guess he's the transfer from Western Carolina. He's the right yeah. guard, six, three, three, 10. You got Cooper Hodges, uh, a guy who's got 25 uh, or 26 starts in his career. Uh, it seems to me like the strength really is more on the, the, you know, in the middle and, and, and to the right side, um, as far as what they, you know, experience and so forth. Because Anderson Hardy, I don't think has made a bunch of starts. Damian Daly, neither. He's the left guard, uh, 6'6", 290 for, for Hardy, 6'4", 295 for, for Daly. But they play fast, don't they? I mean, these linemen, they move pretty well. Yeah, yeah, they do. You know, um, Hardy got a few starts at the end of last year that I think were really beneficial for him, just kind of filling in for the old left tackle, Cole Garrison. Mm-hmm. Um, Damian Daly is a – He's an interesting guy because when he went to he went to Colorado State initially as a defensive tackle or defensive lineman um, and ended up going to Georgia Military College, becoming an O lineman and then joining App the season after. And Nick Cardwell, the the App State O line coach, you know would would talk to me pretty frequently about how Damian was a guy that probably could have started in in most Sun Belt programs. Um, his only issue was the starting left guard at the time is a guy that started. I mean, he had to start almost 40 games. Um, you know, it was just such a, a senior laden group last year that had so much experience together that there wasn't really a way for him to break in. So they felt good about Damian um, going into this season. I think Anderson, you know, he's probably got some growing to do for sure because left tackle is just a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, I, I didn't see anything Thursday that kind of made me raise my eyebrows at him at all. Um, 
Isaiah Helms, the guy you mentioned from Western Carolina, I think he was just a he was he was a guy that I think they were curious to see if he was going to be just a depth guy or if he was going to be a guy that came in and start. And his impact on the O line was just so big right away that he he became a starter almost immediately. Um, yeah, that right side is the nastier side of that line um, because Cooper Cooper and uh, and Helms I think are. Um, are probably like your um, your accelerator for that line a little bit too. Um, I think I think Bear Bear feeds into those guys, and if those guys are are feeling confident, I really think it just kind of flows into a better run game for everybody. By the way, I'm completely mad at myself. I did an entire story about the best names in college football. Did not check App State's roster because I was just I mean, there's 130 rosters to look at. Sure. And of course, somebody immediately points out to me as soon as the article comes out, how could you leave Bear Hunter off uh, your, <laughs> your, your best names list? And he's absolutely right. I mean, that was such a failure. How much is that talked about over there? Just his name and people who, you know, I'm sure that's like an every week game, every game thing, right? People mention that all the time. Oh, man, every, every, uh, the start of every football season, you see some, you see a few people come out with all name teams and, I mean, I've seen him there for years. He actually just came out with a clothing line called Bear Necessities, and it's spelled like B-A-E-R, like he spells awesome. his nickname. Um, and I, I, I used to know the story behind that nickname. I think there's like a tie to his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, but, man, Bear is uh, – he's, he's pretty mild-mannered when you talk to him. Um, on the field, man, like he, he is a nonstop motor mouth guy. Like I mm-hmm. think he's, he's just trying to find ways to needle people. Um, you got to have a guy like him on your team one, because he's just, I mean, he's a qu- very quality lineman, mm-hmm. but I think he's also a guy that kind of finds those sticking points and rides them a little bit. And you, you always got to have that guy on the football field somewhere. <laughs> yep. A uh, glue guy, man. He's the one who, who brings everybody together. I'm sure. Yeah, for um, sure. Um, the one thing I did notice about that offensive line is there's not a lot of depth in, in the sense of playing experience. And that's right. one thing going into this game that if you're watching on Saturday and you see one of those linemen go out, that's a, that's a concern for App State for sure. Yeah, and I think, I think that's like kind of hitting on that point earlier. Isaiah Helms was a guy mm-hmm. that, you know, they really needed in the sense that I think, I think that they probably could have tossed somebody in there to, to kind of learn as they went, as they went along. Um, but a game like Miami is a that's a hard second game into your career to try to learn and, and deal with what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so Isaiah has been huge in that respect because he was he was a game ready guy who probably you know ex- over excelled at Western Carolina, and when they made their coaching transition, it just made sense for for him to look elsewhere, but also probably step up. I mean, he was he was really strong in his in the start of his career there. But yeah, you're right. I think, I think if, if an O-lineman were to come out of the game, it would be problematic. But, you know, I would say that durability wise, the guys that you see there that have the starting experience, they've, I've never really seen them deal with injury too much. I think Cooper may have, it might've been his freshman year or the, the start of a sophomore year, but um, it's none of those guys have ever had injury issues where, you kind of put a little asterisk by their name and say like they're injury prone. So I think they feel good in that respect, but you're dead on with it. I think it's going to be a challenge if they were to go down a man and have to throw somebody into the fire real fast. Yeah. 
Ethan, I appreciate, man, all the time you gave me. I'll give you um, a couple more here before we head out. Uh, number one, where do you think App State feels most confident going into this game that they can beat Miami? Is there an area? Is there a position? Is there a player that you think they look at and say, man, we got a guy who can, who's going to beat their guy? You know, I think kind of circling back to Brendan Harrington, mm-hmm. I think that that's a guy that has a big impact on this game especially when you consider the tight end play that Miami has. I'm blanking on the starting tight end's name right now. Yeah, Will Mallory. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, like, I think that's a guy that can that can be really effective in, in making sure that, you know, things don't go too deep, kind of like you were saying. I feel like this is a game where if App's going to hang into it, they didn't have a single turnover uh, cause the last game. And this is one of those games where I feel like if they're going to be in it, it's going to be one or two turnovers and they're going to have to happen pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, they've, they've been able to do stuff like that in the past too. I think, I think one of the staples of this program, at least since I've been covering it is they've the, the ability to get up for the big games. Um, I obviously didn't cover that first Miami game. And I think, I think part of that game was just sheer talent differential. And part of it was, you know, just being so juiced at the fact that there were 35,000 people in that stadium for the first time ever. And it just kind of like blew up in their face a little bit, but, you know, I covered the Penn state game in 18 where, you know, they were down a ton and it had four fourth quarter touchdowns and pushed on through. And they, they seem to recognize the big moments. I don't think they get swallowed up by them, at least this current group now. Um, but for me, it's, if, if that defense can get an early turnover or an early couple of turnovers, watch out. I think, I think that's the indicator that app might be hanging around a lot longer in this one than, than maybe the, the broad viewership expected. Yeah. Ethan, I appreciate it, man. Any, any final thoughts, man, as we wrap up here, uh, what, what, what is your prediction and what is your expectation for this game? <laughs> um, I think, um, I'm trying to, I, I don't know if I can give you a score. I think this is a Miami win. I think, mm-hmm. I think anytime you open up with Alabama, there's probably a sour taste in everybody's mouth about the way that happened, especially when, when you think about Miami, you know, kind of being a, a, a sexy pick in the sense of like, you know, kind of covering the spread or at least, you know, maybe even challenging Alabama that was replacing so many people, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it's going to end up being a Miami win. I think the best thing that App State can ask for is if you can keep it tight for most of the way, or even if, you, if you're if you not keeping it tight, but you make one of those pushes like you did at the end of the Penn State game. Mm-hmm. I think this game does a lot of favors for App no matter what, unless it's just a complete blowout. You know, this mm-hmm. will be something that they can point to as far as their resume and say, we are one of the best group of five teams. Here's why, you know, and, and – if Miami kind of gets on their course again and and stays as one of the top 15 teams in the nation, like I think they can be, um, it's good for App State too. Yeah. Listen, man, appreciate all the time. Wish you the best of luck moving forward. Are you coming down for the game? I know you got two teams to cover. Are you staying up there for Wake? What's the deal? I wish, man. We we were kind of told pretty early that travel travel stuff wouldn't be so uh, attainable. Mm-hmm. And so when I found out I couldn't do the Miami game, I just said, you know, it's my mom's 60th birthday that this weekend, I'm going to go and spend some time with her and oh, okay. a Good coworkers, deal. a coworker is going to fill in for the wake forest game. So, All right. um, 
doing some personal stuff on the weekend, but I'll be watching for sure. Cause I'm going to be sick to my stomach if I miss out on an upset. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure mom wouldn't mind a trip to Miami though. Right. I mean, I'm yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll call her when we get off and just say like, Hey, what do you think about uh Coral Gables? You know, <laughs> Ethan, thanks so much, man. Best of luck to you. All right. Take care, man. All right. So we were going to wrap up the show with Ethan Joyce, but you know what? I landed a great interview. And I want to share it with you. Here is my conversation with offensive coordinator Frank Ponce, Appalachian State, Miami guy, 305, through and through. Here's what we talked about for about 20 minutes. I'm very happy I got this interview today. It's with Frank Ponce, offensive coordinator at Appalachian State. And, you know, normally Hurricanes opponents, we don't talk to the opposing coordinator, but this is a special occasion because this guy is a Miami guy through and through, played at Miami High, uh, 1987, starting quarterback under Ralph Arza, a guy who uh, has worked his way up the coaching ranks, coached at FIU with Mario Cristobal, and Saturday he gets to come home and and coach against the Hurricanes. Frank, how you doing, brother? How, how's everything going? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. Excited to be down there this week and go back home and be be there against the mighty hurricanes a, a team that i grew up rooting for and now i'm, I'm against it so <laughs> i'm, I'm excited i'm curious how far away i mean look everybody lives in different locations all over miami but i'm curious how far away were you from the orange bowl growing up as a kid not far i mean you know like you said you mentioned i went to miami high so that was uh you know walking the way we used to walk everywhere you know that so and then from um I probably, if I wanted to walk to the Orange Bowl, it would probably be about a 25, 30 minute walk. But in okay. the car, it was, you know, quick, five minutes, 10 minutes. Yeah. And and you were there often as a kid growing up? Did, did you go to the games, uh, the Canes games, Dolphins games when the Dolphins were still there or what? Yeah. You know, and you mentioned uh, Ralph Arcel. So, coach for high, you know, I'm a high school head coach there in Miami High back in the days. And we used to go and scrimmage at the Orange Bowl. You know, mm. I don't know how we did that, but <laughs> we used to scrimmage in high school in the Orange Bowl. So, and that was uh, Gilly, our, my first game ever as a starter was in the Orange Bowl versus Killian. Wow. And uh, we won that game. We're fortunate to win that game. Um, so it was a good day. Uh, so we've play, I've played there before. Uh, we, you know, we've been there. With, when I was at FIU, we played our last game in the Orange Bowl. The last game in the Orange Bowl ever was FIU versus North Texas. So I was part of that um, last game there. So, um, you know, so it's, it's uh, the Orange Bowl is, is something special. And I used to be there watching the Canes play. And our practice when he used to scrimmage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I imagine this has got to be special for you um, for, for many reasons. Although you were, you were down here a couple of years ago with Louisville, right. Uh, playing the Canes. So, I mean, you and Manny Diaz have history. I, I looked it up. I think you guys have faced each other six times on opposite coaching staffs. And I think, I think he's got you five to one, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> And, and, and he has, there's no question about it. And so when we were at FIU, he was established already in middle Tennessee. We were building the program back up. So that's, right. um, you know, so that happened. Um, they came up here with uh, coach Rick, you know, Miami played, we played half state. And then we went over to Louisville the last two years, taking over that program and trying to rebuild it. So, you know, they got us twice um, at Louisville. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, he's got me up. Um, Yeah. He's, he's, he's winning the series right now. You you owe him one though, right? I mean, this is uh this is going yeah. into this game. You're like, I, I owe you one, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I owe him four. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I'm curious. I asked him just now during his press conference. He says he considers you a friend, that you guys have known each other a long time. And look, let's face it. There's not a lot of Hispanic coaches in the sport right now. Mm -hmm. um, but the number's growing. And, you know, you're, you and him and, and obviously Mario at Oregon are three guys that I think are the face of it. You know, you're, you're, you're in big-time positions. Just curious, you know, can you talk a little bit about the friendship with Manny per se and, and then also, you know, being one of those Hispanic coaches carrying the flag? Sure. So, you know, our friendship is, is a solid one, is, is a professional one as well. Uh, he's always been great. You know, even when he became the head coach, I met him through the while we were recruiting against each other. When I was at FIU, he was in Middle Tennessee at that time. And then he went up in his ranks uh, as a defensive coordinator. Manny's always been legit. He's always been real. Uh, he's always established himself as a good person. You know, we talk to him and he doesn't big time you is the word I want to use. Uh, as I, even as a head coach, I can text him or call him. Obviously not this week, but whenever. And he's always receptive. He's always texts us back. He calls back. So he's always been great. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for coach and I admire him because being Hispanic, being a head football coach at a big time program, just like Coach Cristobal is at Oregon and some others, you know, we got some now at Boise. When I say we, the Hispanics and Boise head coach Avalos is a mm -hmm. Hispanic as well. And um, Arroyo at a University of Las Vegas, UNLV. Uh, mm -hmm. He's there as a head coach as well. And, and there's several others um, in other sports as well. You know, Frank Martin and, and Southern, so, um, Southern uh, South Carolina. So, uh, but um, I think the biggest thing, is, Manny, is just being Hispanic and, and you carry that torch and you want them to do good because we want to continue helping our, our heritage to keep improving and keep growing in the sport. And we see it, we're seeing it now. You know, so when you see Mario doing well at Oregon, you're happy for him, you root for him. When you see Manny doing well in Miami and building the program back to where it was, you're happy for him. Uh, so, you know, obviously that's something that's special. You know, now, now in my situation where I'm an offensive coordinator and hopefully everything is going to continue to get better, uh, put myself in a situation where I can be a head coach and give other people opportunities and be able to hire guys that are qualified and, and just give the opportunity to others uh, just like I was given one. So it's something that is, is special to me. It means a lot. It's not something that is taken for granted. I'm truthfully grateful for the opportunity. And I always look forward to just continue to grow as a coach and as a, even, even as a person. And, and normal one thing I always tell even young coaches, man, man, always stay real. Always stay real. Work hard because it's going to come sooner or later. You just got to be patient. You, it's going to come. And so, and that's the biggest thing is patience and just keep working up the ranks because it's going to come. Nothing's going to be handed to you. I want to get into your story a little bit because, I, and I know I mentioned that you were the quarterback at Miami High in 87 under Ralph Arza, but, uh, you know, a lot of Hispanic coaches, um, you know, I think are, we automatically assume, well, Cuban roots, right? Mario and Manny, but you're, I see the, the, the Nicaraguan flag under your name. So I'm curious about your story <laughs> and how you got into football. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's funny how it happened, man. And so, you know, we grew up, I, I'm, I was born in Granada, Nicaragua, so that's where I was born, and I came when I was two years old, young mom. At that time, she was 17. She had me when she was 15, so we came to the U.S., to Miami, Florida. I've been there all my life, and just uh, first, my first sport, the first love was soccer. That's what we, Hispanics, you know, just coming from Central America, that's the sport. It's going to be either soccer or baseball, you know, so that was our thing, so we grew up playing soccer, and then I just started watching this sport on TV, and Man, I see all the kids talking about it in school. So we just started playing at the park, Arbondale Elementary. That's what we started playing at. 
you know, right not too far from Miami High, because that's why I used to live and walk over to Miami High. So we started playing and fell in love with the sport. And I never my wildest dream ever, ever dream or think that I would be making a living coaching, teaching a sport that I grew up playing. So I'm just blessed and grateful that the opportunity has been given to me. And I just want to continue, like I said, just keep growing. But, you know, that's how it happened. It pretty much happened just watching it on TV and listening to my my classmates talking about sports. And I obviously grew up watching the Miami Dolphins, Dan Marino, Duper, Clayton, and went to the park thinking I was Mark Duper, you know, <laughs> playing wide receiver and so forth. So, uh, you know, that, that's that's kind of a, the, my, my story with football. I uh, obviously played high school and played late. So it only played uh, two years. My junior year, I was a receiver, was moved to quarterback my senior year. And that's where everything just started falling for me. And things started falling in place for me. So and then after that, I played at junior college for two years, decided to come back to finish up school at FIU. At that time, FIU did not have a football team, but I was finishing school, but I was coaching and fell in love with the coaching. And the reason I fell in love with the coaching because my position coach that happens to be the brother of the head coach, Ralph Arza, Eddie Arza, did a lot for me as a young man growing up in the sport. And I just felt that I wanted to do the same for others. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate that I can say I have uh, just and what I mean by that is just building confidence in young men, making them believing, making having them believe in themselves, which sometimes kids don't do. And they don't believe in themselves. And, and you know, I think as, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a coach, whatever term you want to use, you can establish that in a young man's heart and his mind that, hey, you are good enough. You can do it if you put the work into it. So and that's something that that's how I got into coaching because of that reason. I wanted to do that for others. And, and again, I fell in love with the sport, just loved it, just the, the scheme part of it, the the excitement, the competition that, that you feel through any kind of sport, but especially during, uh, through football, because that's the one that we, we play and we grew up with. So, but that kind of evolved in it. I coached high school for 16 years down in Dade County. And people say, you ever think about coaching college? No, there was no Hispanics coaching college. None. Maybe one that I can think about growing up in the 90s as a coach. We saw, I saw one at South Florida, Mike Canales at that time. That was it. And he, by the way, he's still coaching. I think he's an analyst now in Maryland. I'm not sure. But but then Mario Cristobal gets the head coaching job at FIU. And I met Coach Cristobal through – We first of all, we played against each other in high school. He, he was at Columbus, and I was at, you know, at Miami High. But he came through schools recruiting where I worked at. And then that's where we kind of met each other and established a friendship. And when he got the job, he asked me would I be interested in interviewing for the job. And I said, absolutely. And then – Man, I interviewed for the job and it was really did really well, was very pleased with the interview and very grateful for the opportunity. I was blessed that I just through the coaching and learning and going to clinics and all the other things that make you want to do to better yourself as a coach, that the opportunity was there. Once it was presented, that you were ready for it. And I think I was ready for it. And it kind of shows. And once he gave me the opportunity, it was nobody. I tell this to everyone. If it wasn't for Coach Cristobal, I don't think anyone would ever given an Hispanic an opportunity at that time. And he gave myself and Coach Mirabal, his offensive line coach at Oregon, that went to Columbus with him, that opportunity. And we're still coaching to this day. So uh, we've uh, we've taken 
we didn't take it for granted, man. We, we took the bull by the horn and continue coaching, growing and getting better and put ourselves in a situation where we can be um, in any, on anyone's staff right now. I mean, guys have called us, uh, both of us, to go coach at their, at their staff. And, and, you know, whether we take it or not, it doesn't matter, but it's just the fact that your peers are noticing you, hey, the job that you're doing at your position and wherever you're at. So, and that's where I'm at now. You know, how I got this job, the offensive coordinator job, is because I coached with Coach Clark here as an assistant. When he was an assistant, he was the, off- the offensive line coach. I was the quarterback coach. And we coached for about four years together, five years, and we hit it off. And he knows how much I know about the game, how what type of person I am, and, this, and, and vice versa. So when he asked me, would I be interested? I said, absolutely, coach. Let's, uh, let's talk. And here I am now. Now, uh, you, listen, you, you had some tremendous success as soon as you got to FIU with Mario. I mean, not only did you guys win probably more games than anybody else has at FIU, um, but you recruited T.Y. Hilton. That was your guy. That was your score, yeah. right? Bringing him into the program yeah. and, and developing him into a, a Pro Bowl talent. Just curious. To, Miami fans very familiar with T.Y. They always wonder, hey, man, why didn't that guy go to the U? Well, you're the reason, right? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. So I got hired right when they, we got T.Y. So okay. we, came, we actually came in at the same time. If you remember, James Coley was the offensive coordinator in 2007 right. at FIU. Right. He had the area in Dade County before he went back to FIU as a tight ends coach. So he recruited the area because Cristobal was heavily involved because he's always heavily involved in recruiting. So they were the ones that got T.Y. to FIU. I came in there right when we signed them. Okay. So when actually when I got hired, they, <laughs> yeah. Then, uh-huh. then I coached, I coached them for the, for the next four years. But when it's funny, cause when we first got there, they told me, uh, Hey, you know, I said, Frank, watch this uh, kid here. He's uh, he signed with us and, you know, he's, he's coming here and at wide receiver. And I watched him. I said, man, that kid looks good. You know, he looked tiny, <laughs> yeah. you know, but he's kind of small. Right. I said, yeah, he, he said, but you know, once he came in, he was, he was special right off the bat. That was something else with uh, T.Y. I'll tell you what, a lot of coaches I talked to a lot of coaches that we played at that time against power five schools, they said, I said, I can't believe we missed on this kid. And the biggest thing was when, and they, they're honest. I said, we, we thought he weren't big enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you, Manny scouts came in to talk to me about TY, just the type of kid he was. He was just giving him a little bit on TY on the personal basis. Cause I'm, obviously as a position coach, I'm with him every single day and we have a very close relation. We still talk to this day and, so they would come and ask me, and I can't tell you how many scouts would tell me, yeah, man, we love him, but our guy doesn't want to take him. He just doesn't think he's big enough. Well, they're kicking their butts. They're kicking themselves in the butt right now too, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times you got to look past that. Sometimes kids have a special skill set that you have to look. In his case, his special skill set is just straight, outright speed, number one. Number two, just a – one of the most competitive human beings you're going to be around. And, you know, he might not be the biggest guy, but it doesn't matter. You know, if speed is speed, it doesn't matter how big you are. If you can't run with somebody, you got a DB that's six feet, you can't run with him. It's just simple. He ran by every team we played. I'm talking about Florida. I'm talking about Alabama. I'm talking about every Kansas at that time. Any big school we played, he would run by him. So we were fortunate to have him. We were fortunate to have him and, and uh, obviously it worked out for him as well. And, you know, we're looking at 11 years now 
later, he's still an all pro receiver and, and, and a great receiver. So, I mean, he's re- well respected. I watched film this past year and even now he's still running by young guys. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, cause we get all these NFL films where we get to watch and see what the guys are doing in the NFL. So I watched the coach just to see what coach uh, Frank Reich is doing at, at, as a head football coach. He calls the offense. He runs the offense. And there he is running by guys still. And it's incredible how fast the kid still is. Mm-hmm. You know? And you've recruited a lot from this area, obviously. I mean, you, you brought kids to Louisville yeah. from South Florida. You brought kids to Appalachian mm-hmm. State. Uh, who are some of the, the greatest hits, man, besides T.Y.? I know that he's going to be the, the headliner since he's the star. But who, who are some of the other guys you, you've been proud to, to take with you? Well, I got to tell you, the number one guy probably right now, and, and some of the other guys might kill me for this, but, you know, Shamar Jean Charles is the first All-American here at Appalachian State, FBS. And I'm not talking about the group. I'm talking about all of college football last year. He is now with the Green Bay Packers. Mm-hmm. Uh, played corner here. We recruited him from Miramar High School. Uh, the next young man will be Demetri- Demetrius Taylor from Miami Northwestern. He has been a wrecking force from the moment he stepped foot at, on this campus at defensive lineman. He's number nine. You will see him Saturday um, playing some really good football up front. So uh, he's been uh, he's been special here for us. Uh, Nate Noel is a running back that is from Dade County uh, that he's up here as well. Uh, Anthony Flores, a kid we recruited from uh, American Harris. He played, started here for three years. He graduated already, but he was an outstanding player at American Harris Plantation and a great player for us here at App State, a very fast linebacker. So we've uh, – we, and then Louisville's got a couple of young guys that we brought up uh, the last two years that are promising. Uh, just they're in the rotation right now, not playing as much as they will in the, in the future. But, you know, very happy with a lot of the guys we recruited. And the biggest thing, Manny, is when we recruit guys – from Miami's from South Florida. I, and I just, I just say Miami, Dade County, Broward County, and West Palm beach to bring him up to the mountains. It's gotta be a special kid. It's gotta be a kid of character. It's gotta be a kid that's focused on, in his football, but number one, he's gotta be an academic kid. We can, you know, we, we want to bring in, we want to develop a pipeline. We have it going, but we got to make sure that every kid we bring, it can't be a, a miss. It has to be a hit because we want to continue to bring kids from South Florida and you can see all over the country, every school goes down there to recruit those kids. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we got, we have a lot of speed and we have a lot of talent. We got great coaching down in, in South Florida. So those guys are developed. They're taught the, the game. Well, so when you come up, bring them to college, it's just like they fit right, right into, to any, any program. I'm curious. Did you go head to head with Manny Diaz on any guys over the years? Any guys that you, you, you know, you, you saw him leaving the, the house or you saw him leaving the school the same yeah. time you were walking in? <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we have, you know, a couple guys in, in the past. And uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure uh, the numbers, but I remember obviously recruiting guys and you said coaches between you guys in Middle Tennessee. Mm-hmm. coaches between FIU and middle Tennessee, that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, when it's even, then, then, you know, you're battling coach does a great job recruiting. I mean, you've seen the type of kids he's brought up to Miami. Mm-hmm. I mean, four-star top notch program. I mean, top notch kids that, I mean, he is, he's done him. Coach Diaz and his staff have done a fantastic job down in Miami the last couple of years. He's been a head coach. Even as a defensive coordinator, he brought the right guys in. And that's why they're, they're, they're a good football team. You know, you can't. And I tell, you know, people, I get a lot of calls this week, Manny, and they say, well, you didn't look too good. I said, listen to me. There's teams in the NFL have a hard time with that team they play, you know. So <laughs> that, that 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 team is something is different now. You know, to the fans, it doesn't seem that way. 
because mm-hmm. they don't understand it. But when you're a football person and you see college football and you see it day in and day out, when you put that film in and you watch those guys that they played, that's a different animal. So, but it doesn't take away from how good Miami is. And, right. and they're a great football team and coach done a good job. But yes, we've gone head to head on a couple guys. You know, we win, we, we, we going back and forth in, in that department. <laughs> we going back and forth. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to this game on Saturday. I'm looking forward to seeing you coach against them. Uh, and he, and he's the defensive coordinator again. So he took back that yeah. from, uh, after two years off. So I think technically, is this the first time you guys go head to head as play callers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this will be the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. that 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 makes it interesting. Was there any phone call between you guys before the season? Any like, <laughs> hey, I saw the calendar. We're going to see each other week two. <laughs> no, we knew. And, you know, and the type of guy, man, is just to show you what type of guy he is and what type of relationship. I was there for their 7-on-7 tournament. Mm-hmm. He, You know, I asked, I said, there's some guys I want to go see. You mind if I come? He said, yeah, come on on, man. If 707 is the best thing. So mm-hmm. I talked to him there um, this all, this summer during that camp. But, you know, we'll text back and forth. I'll text him, you know, see how he's doing and whatnot. And he'll respond. But, you know, we haven't talked this week. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk at pregame <laughs> on the field. So, <laughs> yeah. And then and then whatever happens, happens, right? I mean, uh, they let yeah. the chips fall where they may. Uh, Frank, yes, it, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. I know you probably got to go coach or do something. Uh, any any last thoughts, man, just about coming back this weekend? And I, I know you and the wife and the kids are, are, are up there in Boone, but do you come down to South Florida still often or how, how often do you come home? Man, I'm there all the time. Yeah. I'm there every month. Yeah. You know, and my mom is still there. Grandma is obviously older and, and, and a little bit sick. So I'm always down there every month. I'm always mm-hmm. down there for about a week, two weeks. And maybe if, even if it's a, two or three days, I'm, I'm always down there. So the only time it gets tough, man, is during football season. I, for obvious reasons, it's just mm-hmm. hectic. So the opportunity to go down there and, you know, when I get down there, I'll have dinner and I'm going to drive to go see mom and grandma and, and dad and everybody. So and then Saturday morning, same things and, and then just go back to the hotel and then get ready for the game. Okay. So but, um, you know, it's always exciting to be back, man. Always exciting. Yeah. Going to get some cafecito cubano, cafecito con leche. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know. My, one of my favorite meals, man, arroz, frioles, negro, y está empanizado. Let's do it, baby. Is, it, is there a place? Is there a one in particular that you like to go to that's yours? You know, I, man, you know, Havana Harry's, but we're, we're staying in Fort Lauderdale, so that's a little It's a little bit of a drive, yeah. So, yeah, but if you give me, if you know, Versailles is awesome. If, La Carreta, Sergio's, it doesn't matter. Any, any, any one of those. The same, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm good, man. All right, Frank. So, well, listen. It was a pleasure, man. Look forward to, uh, to to Saturday's game and good luck. And and thanks again for all the time. Okay. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate you. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for this week's wide right episode. Hurricanes kick off against Appalachian state 7 PM Saturday night game is being televised on ESPNU. I want to thank Carlos Ledo, my co-host. I want to thank Ethan Joyce of the Winston Salem journal for joining us to give us the breakdown on app state. And of course I want to thank, Coach Frank Ponce, offensive coordinator, Appalachian State, Miami guy. Fun conversation. Good to catch up with him. Uh, Canes play Appalachian State. Then it's on to Michigan State next week. We'll be back after the game to talk about what happened and to preview the game against Michigan State. 305-954-568. This is the state of Miami. Y'all know y'all come down that way.